So for many years, one of my favorite uh, television shows was Jeopardy. How many of you are familiar with Jeopardy? Jeopardy is this game show that's a quiz show, and so it has these different categories, so there'd be like states or geography, U.S. presidents, but the unique thing about Jeopardy was there would be the answer, and then you'd have to phrase it in the form of a question. So for example, if it were geography or the United States, the, the, the answer you'd select that and say, well, I'd take states for $100, and it would say, this U.S. state is shaped like a mitten. And then the contestants would ring in the first one and say, they'd say, what, what is Michigan? You'd have to form it in the phrase of question. And so, but I haven't watched it for a number of years, but apparently this last week, there was a big event on Jeopardy. It was one of those times where I wish I would have been playing, because I always like to play around and think, oh, I know those things. This is my category. So it came down to the end of the show, and this is the Tournament of Champions. And in Final Jeopardy, this is the one where you can bet all your money if you want. It's the chance where oftentimes the game changes based on that Final Jeopardy question. And so the Final Jeopardy, they introduce the category, and then based on that category, you can, you can wager how much of your winnings you want to place on that. So this week, during the Tournament of Champions, the Final Jeopardy category was the New Testament. I'm thinking, oh, this is my, man, I wish I would have been there. I could have been there. And so this was the final Jeopardy question. Was Paul's letter to them is the New Testament epistle with the most Old Testament quotations. And you're thinking, oh, yeah, this is the one. And so the, the contestants say, okay, we got to play the theme song, right? Here we go. Anybody? So everybody's in. It's like, okay, and... Okay, final answer's locked in, right? So they go to the contestants, and they begin coming to the first contestant. And the first contestant, the, uh, the game show host looks and says, what is it? And the first person says, what is Romans? And the thing says, I'm sorry, that's incorrect. What? What do you mean that's incorrect? The next person, what is Hebrews? And he says, I'm, that is correct, and doubles her money. It's like, no! Okay, no, because... Jeopardy got it wrong. <laughs> Almost no New Testament scholar thinks Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. Not only that, Romans has more Old Testament quotations than the book of Hebrews. So they were wronged in two accounts. So, all this to say, Romans showed up on Jeopardy this last week, which is important because we're studying the book of Romans. But not only that, because Old Testament... Ties in Romans are significant. Now, we don't have any quotations from Romans in our passage for today, but it does talk about the Old Testament a lot. These allusions to Adam, the very first few pages of the Old Testament. So if you ever go on Jeopardy, just know that sometimes, even though you know the Bible, you might still get it wrong. Because Jeopardy and the Show producers there apparently get it wrong. And it, now, trust me, I wasn't the only one outraged by this. It was like, there were a lot of people outraged by this. I even saw an article in Christianity Today where the editor was like, oh, come on, you got this wrong. All right, so we're talking, again, the book of Romans. And so far, we've been learning and studying the book of Romans and been talking about the gospel of God. The title for our series in the gospel of God is this good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ to make things right. And so we've gone through the first, five the first four chapters and the start of the fifth chapter, and the first chapters kind of paint this picture of where people are and how people choose their way over God's way. And this spiral of sin 
And this is from chapter 1, verse 18 through 3.20. And then in 3.21, it begins to introduce and call back to that first opening section about the good news, and it talks about how Jesus comes and He justifies or makes righteous. And so, as you read your Bible and see that word, and you'll see sometimes it says justified and sometimes it talks about the righteousness, that's the same word, it's the same root. And so, different translations handle it differently. They say justified and made righteous. And so, here's this thing, and then we read the story of Father Abraham and how it's this picture that reminds us that this justification, this making right and declaring innocent these two things that are about justification or making righteous come together in Abraham. And Abraham reminds us that it's a gift. It's not through works. It's not through anything we do. Abraham reminds us that it's open to all. And Abraham reminds us that part of justification, justification is the ability of God to raise the dead and do what we cannot see. And then it comes through grace, by grace through faith that it's this absolute trust in who God is, that justification brings life. And as we come into chapter 5, the start of chapter 5, we get this new section. We're starting to look at what does this new life look like? And it looks at it from kind of different angles, from chapter 5 through the end of verse, or chapter 8. And I'm not sure exactly when we'll get through that, maybe before Christmas, maybe after Christmas. But it's this picture of how God is shaping things and what this new life looks like. And so today we're looking at chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, and it takes the angle of kind of this cosmic view of things. And by cosmic, I mean all-encompassing, where it's everybody included, not just a few people, but all of us. It's this story of salvation history. And one thing, as I was reading this passage this week, I sometimes feel like Paul could have used a trip to the writer's lab, used an editor, because it's not easy easy to follow, is it? I mean, he starts off, therefore, just as sin entered death, because all sinned, and then he's like, oh, wait, I got this other thought that comes to mind. And then he comes back to this thing, and then he repeats himself a few times, and then you feel like, Paul, could you give me an illustration of that, because I'm not really sure what you're saying? And so it goes round and round. But the big picture of it is there are two ways that, G- that Paul is describing. There's the way of Adam, and there's the way of Jesus. And so, all of this passage is this contrast between these two, between Adam and between Jesus. That Adam equals sin and death and trespass, and Jesus equals life and justification and righteousness. And so, Paul takes us all the way back to these opening pages of the Bible, to Adam, the first man, the first human, this representative of all people. And he says in chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through the one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all sinned. And so what's he looking at? He's saying that sin brings death. And he's saying sin is universal, as is the consequence of death. And so he's painting this picture and wants to understand that about, he doesn't explain exactly how it works, but what he's saying is that all of us are sinners. All of us choose to sin. But he's also talking about, as he says, when he says, therefore, as sin entered the world, and so this power of sin, and sin takes a verb there. 
Sin isn't just the actions that we do, but sin enters the world, this power of sin, and along with it, the power of death, so we could capitalize, capital S, sin, and capital D, death, enters into the world. And so death came to all people. Everyone dies because all sin. And he's been painting that picture before, so he's painting this great picture of it. And then he makes the point in um, 13 through 14, verses 13 through 14, that sin and death were before Moses. So he wants to set aside any ideas, well, it's just about the law, but it's all before that. And so what Paul wants us to see is he's starting and reminding us of, if we've forgotten, the reality of sin and death. It's not so much an origin story. It's painting this picture of this is the world in which we inhabit. This is the world in which we live, that the way of Adam is a web of sin and death, that we all sin like Adam did. That Adam's story is a mirror of ours. So if we go back to the opening pages of the Bible, we have Adam, and he's set in the garden, and he's given this command to reflect and to rule as God's co-regent. God speaks to Adam and to Eve, and he says, I want you to live in this garden, and I want you to rule and to reign over all these things. And he gives him one rule, to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But Adam chooses his way over God's way. He decides he knows. He wants to decide for himself what's right and what's wrong. And he chooses and he enters into sin. And then there's this spiral that follows after where then Adam's one son kills his other son. And then the world declines in a row of violence. And so when it says, because all sin, death entered the world, we see this picture. We see the story of Adam. And we're invited to see the reflection of that story in ourselves. And all we have to do is pick up the newspaper, if any of you still read a newspaper, or turn on your computer, or, or turn on your phone and start scrolling the news and see that this web of sin and death still exists in the world, and that it's powerful, and that it's strong, and that it's everywhere. Oftentimes, as I prepare for prayers and stuff on Saturday, I'll, I'll, I'll pull up the headlines and look at the things. I didn't get a chance to yesterday and look through the things, but I would guarantee if I pulled out my phone right now and started scrolling the headlines, you would see sin and death all over the world. And all of the, most of us realize we don't even need to turn on our phones or open the newspaper or turn on the television or watch the evening news to see the web of sin and death. We experience it in our everyday lives. We experience it directed at us, and we also experience it as we direct it at others. And so, what Paul is inviting can saying, this story of Adam is a reflection of us. That sin is undeniable, it's universal, it's inescapable. And then Adam set off this reaction, this chain reaction that we're all following in. And sometimes we like to think we can control things. We can control and overcome these things through science, through technology, through wisdom, through education, through all sorts of ways, but we can't. We're caught in this web of sin and death. Even death, sometimes people think they can overcome through technology. And so there's a movement called transhumanism where people are attempting to meld technology and humanity to maybe expand themselves, maybe to download their brains into a computer. Or some people have been frozen, this cryogenic freezing where they take a person and they freeze their body in the hope that one day technology will cure whatever illness has killed them so that one day they can be raised again to life. And so there's this hope that we have. But it turns out to be a false hope because 
for most of us, what happens as we look at the web of sin and death and all these things going on is it can feel hopeless. It can feel overwhelming. And what Paul wants us to see is there is a rescue. And the refrain of the verses that follow from 15 through 21 is that the bad may seem overwhelming, but the good is more. That sin and death may seem overwhelming, that the way of Adam may seem to be too much, but Jesus is more. And I want us to see this contrast. We're going to look through quickly through these verses, 15 through 21. So in verse 15, but the gift is not like the trespass. And so we begin to set up this contrast. The gift, that's Jesus, is not like the trespass, the way of Adam. The gift, the way of Jesus, is not like the trespass, the way of Adam. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, so there's the, the way of Adam, died by the trespass of one, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Do you hear it in the language there? How much more did God's grace, His gift, and so this language of gift that came by the grace of one man overflowed to the many? And so it's this picture of God's grace, His gift just pouring out over them. And so here's this start of this contrast to the way of Adam versus the way of death. That sin and death are on this side and grace and life are on the other. And so we see again and again this language of grace and gift. That the source of the grace, the source of the gift is the God the Father. And Jesus is the gift and the grace. And we see that this picture of the trespass leads to the many dying and the gift and the grace overflowed. And we have this picture of gift and grace and what they do. So again, now in verse 16, nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. So what does the ones, what does sin bring? Judgment, condemnation. Ah, but the gift followed and brought what? Justification and righteousness. Verse 17, for if the trespass of the one, death reigned through that one man. So what, is, what happens in the way of Adam? Death reigns. What about that? How much more? Again, hear that language. How much more will we receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? The way of Adam, death reigns. The way of Jesus, life reigns. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all. So again, sin leads to what? Condemnation. But the one righteous act resulted in justification. There's that word justification or making righteous and life for all people. Verse 19, for just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. So disobedience leads to sinners. But so through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. You see that contrast back and forth between Adam's deed and Christ's deed, between our deed and Christ's deed, between disobedience and and obedience, and the difference in the results. So the one side is what? It's sin and trespass, and what does it lead to? Death, condemnation. And the other side is obedience, and it leads to what? Righteousness and life. 
And so what Paul is doing is inviting us into hope, which is what he pulled to in the start of chapter 5, this picture of hope. Hope in what feels like an overwhelming situation. Because as you read this, you can feel overwhelming this presence of sin all around us. And he provides us hope because of the gift. So grace is, again, gift language. And so we see this word, and there's a couple different words used in here, but this word gift and grace shows up again and again. And sometimes we think of simply grace as letting somebody off the hook. And you turn in a paper late at school, and the professor lets you, or the teacher lets you have an extra day, and it's like, oh, he showed me grace. You know, something happens with your kids, and you say, well, I'm going to, I told you if you do that again, this is what's going to happen, but I'm going to show you some grace. And that's a part of grace, but grace is more than that. Grace is this picture of a gift. And a gift, what Paul talks about is it's a gift given to the unworthy. Because who was the grace given to? Here painted in this and all through the chapters, the grace is given to those who are sinners, those who were in rebellion, those who were in trespass. And so the gift is given to the unworthy, to the undeserving. But it's a gift that changes things. It changes relationships. We saw that last week where the gift of Jesus changes us from being enemies of God to being reconciled to God. We can think of that in human terms, where we imagine when a man gives a woman a gift of a diamond ring or some other type of ring, what does that do? It changes the nature of the relationship. It changes what things look like. And so when we talk about Paul, when Paul talks about God giving the gift of Jesus, he's talking about a gift that changes us. And so I would want us, encourage us to picture grace as something so much more than just God saying, oh, it's okay. I'm not going to punish you. But God's gift, and God's gift is a person, a person, Jesus, who brings righteousness, who brings change, who brings about change. So the gift of God brings change into it. The gift, the gift of Jesus does more than just undo what Adam did. The gift of Jesus is more than just a reset button, taking us back to the beginning. It not only takes us back to the beginning, it sweeps us into this new creation, this new way of living. Because when Paul's writing to the letter of the Romans, that's one of the challenges is churches in this battle back and forth with one another where people looking down on one another, divisions and stuff, and Paul is encouraging them to say, this life you're entering into, this gift that God has given you, makes all things new and it's sweeping us into this big story. And the one thing that Paul wants to get behind is that this isn't a balancing act. Where it's like, oh, I've got, I've got sin here, and then God brings some grace. Okay. But instead, what he paints is this picture is whatever the reality of sin and death is, that God's grace is greater. That God pours it out. And this is important because sometimes in our lives, we can look at maybe the sin in our own life, the sins in other people's life, or maybe the power of sin, this way that it enslaves us and enthralls us, it overwhelms us, and we can feel like it's hopeless. We can feel like we're stuck in it. 
But like, I, I can't ever get out of this, I, that God can't ever forgive that. I don't know what God can do to change that. Or maybe we look at other people, even more likely, because we're usually better at seeing it in other people than we are in ourselves. And we look at other people and we see, man, that, that person's got some problems. We just look at the sin in their life. It's just like across their forehead, sin. They've got it stamped, tattooed on every part of their body and stuff. And like, oh, I don't know. And what Paul wants us to see here is whatever the reality of sin and death is in somebody's life, that God's grace, God's gift, God's power is so much more. How much more did God's grace... Jesus Christ overflowed to the many. It can't be compared. The gift followed. The trespass, death reigned. How much more will God's abundant provision of grace? You just hear that language. You say, God just pours it out. God doesn't look and say, well, here's a little bit of grace. Hope it's enough. Good luck. But instead, God provides what one writer calls an avalanche of grace to overwhelm whatever's going on in our life. And so this is an encouragement, a hope for us when we look at the world around us, as we talked about just a few minutes ago, and see the sin and the death and this web of corruption that the world is caught in, and we begin to maybe despair just a little bit, to wonder. And what Paul is reminding us is God is pouring out grace. There is no place that God's grace can't overwhelm. There's no sin that it cannot overcome. There is no trespass that it can't overcome. But instead, God pours it out in abundance, that God's grace is greater than that. Or if we're looking at our own life and thinking, there's this thing that's going on in my life, there's this habit I have of lying, this habit I have of looking at the things on the computer that I don't want to look at, this habit I have of, of doing these things to other people, this habit I have of taking things, and all these things, and we say, I don't know about it. And what Paul wants to say is, God's grace is greater than that. God's response to sin and death is not to wash his hands, it's not to push it away, but God's response to sin and death in the world, God's response to sin and death in our own lives is to give a gift. And we think of these gifts that are sitting here, of these small boxes, and God does so much more, and these boxes, I said, are significant and stuff, but God doesn't send a shoebox, God doesn't send a truckload, God sends this super abundance of gifts and just pours it out on us, and it's called grace, and its name is Jesus. And He pours it out on Him. And what He's saying is because of this gift, we will do more than not know death. The gift does more than just keep us from death. It says we will reign in life. God's abundant, and this is in verse 17, He says, God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And it takes us back to that picture we talked about Adam before. And Adam had this role to reign and to rule. And so what God's abundant provision, this great gift He does, is it makes us to do what we're called to do in Genesis 1. And it reminds us that whatever death and sin looks like in our life, it can't match the superabundant gift of God. It's no match for it. Paul wants us to get that. He wants to say, this is this cosmic story that two ways of life, the way of Adam, the way of Jesus. 
the way of sin and death and condemnation and judgment, the way of life and justification and righteousness, the way of the gift and the grace that comes through Jesus Christ. And it comes in abundance. And so as we enter into this week of Thanksgiving, there's many things we can be thankful for. Thankful for family, for food, for houses to live in, for clothes to wear, for friendships, all those things. But most of all, what I would encourage us to give thanks for is this overflowing, superabundant, overwhelming, massive gift of God, God's gift, God's grace, which is Jesus. And so may you celebrate, may you give thanks, and may you know that this week, that whatever sin and death you see in the world, whatever sin and death you experience in your own life, God's gift is greater. God's gift brings life, it brings hope, it brings justification, it brings righteousness, it brings life. And so may you know at this week the power of God's superabundant gift, which is Jesus. Amen.